Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be covering more of the book of Revelation. If you're just now joining us for the first time, we've done others. So you want to go back and check those. We're going to be covering, I think, Revelation 3 today with a continuation of the churches. And if I'm doing my math right, Revelation 3 verse 1 is Sardis. So Bryce, what's going on? So let's remind everyone there's kind of a pattern here. Remember, the book of Revelation is a testimony. And so what is it of what is it testifying And these letters to the churches symbolize messages to all of us in all dispensations. In every single letter, the Lord, well, I know there's some variance. Sometimes he doesn't do one. But in most of the letters, A, he tells us something that we need to remember about himself, something that's crucial, something that we need to hold on to throughout our lives, especially when trial and challenges come. Number two, he he points out some of the good things they're doing that we we all need to do. Number three, he points out something that they need to correct, some behavior they need to change. And if they do that and overcome, he gives them a blessing. Here's what's going to happen. And every, every time that blessing is pointing to something that we're going to see in Revelation, in the vision. And so it kind of it's, it's unpacking some of these images to say, if you overcome, you can eat from the tree of life. Well, the tree of life is going to make an appearance in the vision. If you overcome, then, you know, all these things will happen. So we're going back to that pattern. What do we need to know about Jesus? So just as a reminder, let's focus on what do we need to know about Jesus? Back in chapter 2 to Ephesus, he said, I hold the seven stars in my right hand. We should never forget that the Lord holds his servants in his right hand. All of us. His servants are in his right hand. He's going to be with us. Oh, and then he says, I walk in the midst of the golden candlesticks. He's going to be with us. To the church in Smyrna, he says, first and last. And Mark gave a great insight as to what is, what does that mean? Alpha and Omega, I'm the beginning and the end. What is he the beginning of? What is he the end of? Everything, right? Our salvation, our hope, everything. So all of the pain in our life will end because of him. All the joys in our life will continue because of him. Um, Verse 12 to Pergamos. He says, I have a sharp sword, two-edged sharp sword. So we've talked about the symbolism of the sword. And then to Thyatira, he says, my eyes are like a flame of fire. My feet are like uh, fine brass. So we talked a little bit about that. So now we open up to chapter 3 and to Sardis. He says, I remind you that he hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, why would the Lord repeat something? He repeats it to emphasis to say, look, don't forget I have the leaders of my church in my hand and that I talk to them and I hold them and that they're constants. So he repeats that. Now, in verse 1, thou hast a name that thou livest and are dead. Verse 3, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. So there's the thing they need to change. You have a name. We've talked a little bit about holding a name but you're dead. You've kind of walked away from that. You need to repent and return. If you do that, verse 4 and 5, they shall walk with me in white. Verse 5, he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. 
I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before the Father. Now we get to a major, major symbol, not just in the book of Revelation, but in all of the, the, the scriptures. The image of being clothed, covered in white. Um, Mike, you want to take this for a second, or I'd love to share a few thoughts, but why don't you go? I've said a lot. Tell us about that image of being covered and clothed in white. Okay, so when it, when it comes to being covered and clothed in white, we see this in a, a lot of Egyptian texts. Osiris is the god of the dead that are to rise. And so when you go to the throne of Osiris, you take upon yourself the name of Osiris. This is all Egyptian stuff. And there's a lot of this in what's called the Book of the Dead. And a lot of these letters are in about chapters 115 and 125 of the Book of the Dead. I'll put it in the show notes. The, the idea that, the and by the way, the Egyptians loved Christianity. When Christianity came to them, they were ready made for this because it's the same stuff. You take upon yourself the name of Osiris, you become an Osiris. There's a verse in the Book of Mormon that talks about being encircled about in his arms. And this verse to me is so powerful about coming to the Father. And it's just, it's just beautiful. So it's Alma 34, uh, verse 16, but this is all over the place. But here's verse 16 of Alma 34. Mercy can satisfy the demands of justice and encircles them in the arms of safety. Now, to me, that's an embrace. This is ritual literature. The, the Book of Mormon is temple. And so, Bryce, I think this idea of coming before the Father, and he's going to confess me before his angels, I'm coming to him in a temple context. I'm wearing white. I'm encircled about with his arms. In other words, he puts his robes on me, yep. and I take upon myself his name. And like I said, the Egyptians eat this up. When Christianity comes there, like I said, they're ready-made because this is all stuff they're doing. And let me take everyone back to the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve, it says, were naked and unashamed. Our nakedness are those parts of our lives that we want to keep private, that we don't want people to know. And so they were naked and unashamed, meaning they weren't ashamed to be exposed. Um, Adam could have handed his phone to his wife and said, take a look, there's nothing on my phone that I'm trying to hide. I'm not ashamed of anything that I've done. I'm naked and unashamed. But then in the next chapter, they partake of the fruit. Now they have something they're ashamed of. They'd like to hide. They don't want God to know. So in verse 13, they this is Moses 3, they cover themselves with fig leaves. Now notice that fig leaves are the things we cover ourselves with. This is my attempt to hide my sins. Fig leaves are a small, a very small thing compared to a white robe. And those of you who've been to sacred places will recognize that. But fig leaves sometimes represent all the things I try to cover myself with, my sins with, like lies. I cover myself in lies or uh, rationalization. Fig leaves are the things we cover ourselves with. And that's Moses 4.13. Moses 4, not 3. Yeah. It, it, Moses 3 is where it says they were naked and unashamed. So Moses 4.13. And then notice when the fig leaves don't work, because fig leaves fall off. They're going to dry up and fall off, and they're not going to work. And so in verse 14, they cover themselves with trees. So when the fig leaves don't work, they hide among the trees. And that's so typical of, of people today that they, you know, I'm going to tell a lie to cover my sins. 
to hide it from people. And then when the lie starts to fall off, I have to cover the lie with a bigger lie. And then I have to cover that lie with a bigger lie and a bigger lie. And that's the fig leaves of our lives. So Adam and Eve finally say, you know what, this isn't going to work. And so they come forth and they confess to the Father. They repent. They give themselves to God. They, like Mike is describing, they come to God. And when they come to God, notice what he does. This is Moses 4.27. Moses, or God takes coats of skins and he covers them. Now, where did God in the Garden of Eden get skins from to cover Adam and Eve? He killed an animal. Which animal did he kill to provide skins for Adam and Eve? A lamb. He killed a lamb and covered Adam and Eve. Do you see the symbolism? It's stunning. The white robe is the atonement. And if you come to the Father, like Adam and Eve did, and drop your silly lies, all your fig leaves, all the things that you're trying to use to hide your sins, if you will repent and come unto the Father, he covers you in the atonement. The root word that is translated atonement in our scriptures is kafar, which means a covering. And so this is beautiful symbolism. If you will come unto the Father, he will clothe you in white robes. Now, I know we're going to get into this when we do Revelation, but let's jump to Revelation 19, because where, uh, just an image of these white robes. So Revelation chapter 19 is where the Savior comes on earth. This is the second coming. You know, he's here. He's arrived. So it starts, you know, hey, get the word out. Let everyone know. The, the verse 9, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage of the supper. Um, back in verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor. The marriage of the Lamb is come, and to his wife, and oh sorry, his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. So she was given a wedding dress. She was given fine linen. Now what is the fine linen that we will wear to the marriage, our righteousness. The fine linens is the righteousness of the state. So, so in one image, the white clothing is the atonement that covers us and keeps our sins covered. In another image, the white clothing is a dress that we stitch with our righteousness. Every time we keep the commandments, we are stitching a robe of righteousness that we will put on and wear to the wedding feast. This is beautiful imagery, and we see it all throughout the scriptures and all throughout our lives. If you will come unto the Father, he will cover you with the atonement, and you will be protected and blessed, and all of your sins will remain covered, and there's nothing that you need to catch. You know, you, you don't have to do it yourselves because the atonement will cover you. Anyway, I know that's a long journey, but that's beautiful. I love that. Can I just add a verse to what you're talking Please. about? I love, I just love this. It's Second Nephi 2 verse 3. And to me, I don't know how to say it perfectly, but the idea of the, the garment that's being given and it, that it's Jesus and it, you know, it is the righteousness of the saints, but what does that even mean? 
you know, when we read in Isaiah, like the works of, of uh, that we do are like filthy rags. I think that's Isaiah 65. And then there's the quote by King Benjamin, right? He says, if you were to labor your whole days, and I like to put superlatives in there, if you were to cure cancer, if you were to be 20 times the, the wealth of Bill Gates and donate it all to cure, cure everything, uh, King Benjamin says we're unprofitable servants. So I love this verse where Lehi is talking to Jacob. And in 2 Nephi 2 verse 3, he says, Thy soul shall be blessed, and thou shalt dwell safely with thy brother Nephi, and thy days shall be spent in the service of thy God. And then this is what I love. He says, Wherefore I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. It's because of Jesus. If we fix our eyes on Jesus and we just do what Bryce is talking about, where we get rid of our pretensions and our walls and we just have an honest communication with him, um, he puts his robe on us. And we get in, not because we're great, but because he's great. And so my testimony is just in, it is fully in Jesus. It's not in me. My job is to submit, to love him, and to just want to emulate him. And I just, he's everything. And I just love that verse in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, he's willing to to take his covering, his white robe, and just wrap us in it. And I, I think the Book of Mormon really teaches the idea of what's my job and what's what does the Savior do? And th- you get these little nuggets, and they're everywhere in the Book of Mormon. But that sentence, I know you're going to make it, Jacob, because of Jesus. Yeah. I just love that. Yep. Okay, so that's white That's white raiment. That's Sardis. That's beautiful yeah. symbolism. So the next church here is Philadelphia. Mike, you want to tackle this one? Yeah, you bet. So to the saints in Philadelphia, uh, there's a little bit in here on the key of David I think we're going to get to in a second. But in verse 9, we're back to false credentials. I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. And there's a lot to unpack here, but this is evidence that maybe the book of Revelation, at least this part of it, was textualized before the fall, because otherwise it doesn't make sense. In other words, Judaism and Christianity are together. They're one part of the, of the tree until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so from a lot of the scholarship I've read, this is a clue that this part of Revelation was put to paper before that. Otherwise, to me, into, into scholarship, it doesn't make sense. That's a little bit in the weeds, but just know that there's clues throughout the book that this text was written during a time of persecution and perhaps during a time before Roman persecution. Like I said, it's a little technical. But Bryce, why don't you talk about the key of David in verse 7 of chapter 3 of Revelation? Okay, to the servant in the in Philadelphia, write these things, saith he that holy is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. Now, David was the king of Israel, the key of David. Now, I think most people are familiar with modern business. When you walk in, you don't go see the president of the company. You're greeted by a secretary, and that secretary can either buzz you in or not. So someone has the ability to decide who gets in to see David and who doesn't. Someone has the key of David. And someone was the steward. Someone was the guard that, you know, people came to them and here's your case. Okay, you get to see the king. Nope, you don't. Well, Jesus has the key of David in the fact that he determines who gets to see the father and who doesn't. So Jesus has that key. Now, incidentally, just before we go, in the Old Testament, there was only one person who could go into the Holy of Holies. One person, one day a year, and it was the high priest symbolic of Christ. Christ is the only person who on his own can make his way back to the Father. He can, he can see the Father on his own merits, but none of the rest of us. Moments after Christ was dead on the cross, 
the veil of the temple rips. Because symbolically, now because of the completed atonement, everyone can go into the temple and see the Father. Everyone can see him. He, he broke that barrier. And so now we, we all can, because of Christ, we all can go see the Father. So notice what Christ does with the key of David in verse 7. No, or, uh, Jesus has the key of David. He that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. So what have I done? I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Jesus has removed every single barrier between us and the Father. Death was a barrier. He removed it. Sin was a barrier. He removed it. I have opened every door, says Christ, and no one can shut it. The only person that can prevent you from going to see the Father is you. No one else can. Jesus has opened every single door. He has laid before us an open path back to the Father. Now that's significant because in the, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to the church of the Laodiceans. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, and I know Mike you'll have a lot to say about this, but let me just throw this in. Revelation 3.20, Jesus stands at my door and notice that it's not open, it's closed. He has to knock. And whether or not Jesus comes into my life depends on whether or not I open up that door and invite him in. He's knocking and pleading. So the doors between me and the Father, Jesus has opened and left open and no one can shut them. No one can prevent me from going to the celestial kingdom but me. But the door into my life... My heart is closed, and I have to open up that door to Jesus. If I do, he will come in and sup with me. So beautiful imagery on the key of David there, Mike. By the way, Bryce, I like what you said a few podcasts ago. I don't remember which one it was, but when we were talking about Revelation, where you said you've got to see the words. If you just read the words, I think we miss everything you just said. But if you see... That the key now the key of David is unlocked in Isaiah 22, and there's we're not going to go there right now, but there's a ton in there, and it's a messianic, like a code word or a messianic breadcrumb to talk about it's Jesus. I think it could also apply to Peter in the context of Matthew 16 and keys and priesthood. But back to the image, when you said it the way you did with uh, the veil and it's been it's been torn and it's been open. I don't know how you can, I don't know how you can disagree with that. That's just a really good image about well, it's open, and then when you get to verse twenty, and it doesn't say closed door in there, but when you read it and you have us see it, it's like, yeah, it's closed. And how many Hence times he's knocking? How many times are we like that though, where we're like, well, I'm just not going to pray, or I'm not going to bear my testimony because you're sitting there in church and you're thinking about the time that you were maybe being a jerk, or maybe, oh, I just I'm not good enough, right? Okay, so I have to say this. This is totally not revelation, but I just have to say this. I was reading on social media. This guy posted this thing, and he said, name something that you own that, that you didn't get from your grandpa and grandma. So not an heirloom from your family, but something that you own that when you're dead, you want your kids to have. And that was such a powerful question. The responses were so cool. And right now there's this a lot of commercials for this thing called the Peloton, which it shows this mom cycling on it. And she's hugging her husband on Christmas. She's like, honey, I love you so much. And so one guy on the social media tagged, he wrote, 
Peloton. And he's joking, right? But then I really thought about that, Bryce, and I'm, I want to pitch that question to you. What would you want your kids to have that isn't like great-grandma's shotgun or the, the diamond ring from your great-grandma? And really, we're down to not a lot of stuff, aren't we? Right. And most of them are symbols of who I was, what I want them to remember about me. You know, um, I, I have a tool that I treasure, and, and my kids know that that's dad's tool. And, and I would love one of my kids to have that tool and say, you know what, my dad worked hard. My yeah. dad was a hard worker. And, you know, he got that tool himself. He paid for it. And, man, did he use it. And this yeah. is what he did with it. I think that would be a treasure because it would be something that I would want my children to remember about me. Yeah. Things that symbolize who I was. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I really thought about that because my mom died. And when she died, um, she has a lot of books. And you know me. I'm, I'm kind of a book nerd. And I most of her books I have. And I read, like, her notes in the margins and I feel like she's sitting on the couch with me going, hey, look at this. Yeah. And I think about that a lot. You know, we had a relative die recently, and I remember I had to clean out his house, and most of his stuff was garbage. We just took it literally to the dump. Some of it was given to DI. Uh, my point that, you know, I know we're getting off the, off the reservation with Revelation, but my point is um, I think that's another question of, well, what really matters? And is your door, are you closing your door to Jesus because you're just too busy doing stuff that when you die, it's just going to, it's not even going to make it in the DI pile. And I think about our kids and I think about, well, what can we give them? And we can give them a name. And, and that's really what's going on in verse 12 of Revelation 3. It says, him that overcometh, we're back to that Nikeo, it's the conquerors. I like overcome. But think about winning a race. You've got your Nikes on if you heard the other podcast. That's, that's where Nike comes from. Nikeo, I've overcome, I've conquered. I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. So what do we put our names on? And if you think about it, it's really stuff that you, like you're proud of it or it's important. And I, I just, I think I love that. Now the high priest would wear holiness to the Lord on his forehead when he would walk in and out around the sacred, you know, areas around the temple. Uh, missionaries wear the name tag in, in the temple. We receive sacred things. In John 17, John, Jesus is talking to his father, and he's like, these guys you gave me, these apostles, I've given them. I've given them the name that you gave me to give them. And you know, we've talked about this before, but in King Benjamin's speech, you're going to be called by a new name. So I just think it's beautiful. But I really think it's really, what are we talking about, Bryce? I think we're talking about what matters. Yeah. And that's going to be a key to understanding the rest of Revelation because the beast is going to come along, and he's going to replace that name and give you a new mark on your forehead. Yeah, there's dualism. There's a lot of dualism here. So, so she's ha see how the Lord's setting us up to understand, you know, the, the challenges that we're going to face is I want to put the Lord saying, I want to put my name on you. I want to put my name right on your forehead. You're the, mine. You're mine. You're my you possession. You. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's going to be an imitation and they're going to be a try and get your name. Now this, you know, again, this corresponds to the temple because in section 109, when we're dedicating the Kirtland temple, Joseph prays, you know, that bless those who come in and says, upon whom thou shalt put thy name in this house. 
So even in modern day, Revelation 109, when the Lord dedicates the Kirtland Temple, he says, if you'll come into my house, if you'll be a pillar in my house, I will put my name on you. I will own you. I will protect you. You are mine. You're in my house, and I will keep you safe. But beware, because pretty soon we're going to be, meet other forces who are going to try and put their name on us and put their mark on us, and that's going to, you know, we're setting us up for what's coming up in the, with the beast and the mark in the forehead. I have to throw this out there. The name, I'm going to get right into it, Latter-day Saint theology, we're unique. We literally believe we are children of the Father. We are children of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, Heavenly Parents who love us and we love them. It's family. Yeah. And I, we stand unique as Latter-day Saints about this understanding of we are the B'nai Elohim. We are the children of God, literally. Yeah, our relationship with God isn't creator-created. It's parent and child. Which makes the name even more cooler. Very cool. Yeah. Okay, right, should so, we do Laodiceans? Yeah, let's do that Last one. Last church, verse 14. Um, I love the fact that in verse 14, he calls himself the Amen. He is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, why do we say Amen? We always close our prayers with Amen. It's like, I stand, I, I agree, I'm with you. You've got my vote. I'm, I'm here. And Jesus is the Amen. He's the end, the finisher, the final. It's going to happen. I'm the Amen. I love that. I'm the Amen. I'm the faithful and true, but he's also the beginning. He's the beginning of the creation. So again, that first and the last, which we've talked about. But then this idea, verse 15, 16, and 17, one of the great challenges he asks us not to do is to be lukewarm. He says, I'd rather have you be hot or cold. Pick a side. You can't waver. You can't hold on to the rod, go to the tree, and still be in the building. Now, some of us wish we could stretch our hand into the building and yet still partake of the fruit. And the Lord's saying, nope, you're going to have to pick a side. You're going to have to choose. You can't be lukewarm in this fight. You can't fight on the side of the devil one time. You can't choose his side and then run back over and fight for Christ once in a while and then run back over and fight for the devil. You can't choose that. If you're going to do that, I'm going to spew you out of your mouth. You've got to buy into it. And the way I'm going to do that, verse 18... I'm going to try you with fire. But you can't be lukewarm. You've got to pick a side. We're either with him or we're against him. And so he says, you've got to choose which one of those. Um, yeah. anything, anything you want to add, Mike, about that? I just, I think it's exhausting. Verse 16 is pretty exhausting to try to do both. And we've all known people in their lifetime, they just keep vacillating back and forth. And what an exhausting life. Um, I'm a big fan of, Late repentance is better than never, but I always come back to what about your kids? Um, what about what about your children? And so, to those of you that are listening, if you have young children, I just want to add a testimony that there's value in holding to the rod, even when you don't understand something, or even when you have questions, or even when you have doubts. Um, brothers and sisters, it wouldn't be faith if there wasn't doubt, and th there's never going to be all the evidence stacked on one side where God is intellectually compelling you and forcing you to believe. And so all of us live in this lukewarm sea, and the Lord is asking us to stand up. And it's hard. I know. I know it's not always easy, but there's value in holding true 
and I really do believe this, Bryce. I believe a lot of people out there that are really confused. Uh, you know, I see a lot of social media out there of people in their 20s and early 30s, and they're living the the great and spacious building. And I wonder what what are they going to be saying when they're 65? There's something about steadiness and just yeah, just stay true, and yeah. and it's worth it. I just want to add my testimony to that. The only thing I really want to talk about in this letter is verse 21. I really want to hammer it. Well, really 20 and 21. Let me throw this quote in from Neil A. Maxwell. I, in Lehi's dream, the people in the building are going to mock us. That's just a reality. The people in the building are going to mock us. And some people can't stand that. And they will leave. They will leave the tree because they can't deal with the mocking of the people in the building. But those who stand firm at the tree are the ones that get to eat that fruit. Neil A. Maxwell said, so here we are in Eden and Eden become Babylon. Perhaps we have grown too accustomed to the place. Even if we decide to leave Babylon, some of us endeavor to keep a second residence there, or we commute on weekends. Some go on trying to serve the Lord without offending the devil. You gotta be hot or cold. You can't be lukewarm here. All right, take us through the rest of this, Mike. Well, I really like what you did with verse 20. If you look at it and you read it as something you see, the door is shut, the Savior's knocking, and he says, if you'll open the door, then you'll sup with me. In the first temple, first temple Israelite religion, everyone would eat symbolically with Yahweh at the end. It was a huge feast, and we've talked about this before, and it's going to be again in Revelation at the end of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This, verse 20, is temple, and it ends in 21. To him that overcometh, to the victor, to the conqueror, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. This is Jesus talking. Even as I conquered and am set down with my father in his throne. In, in Christian theology, this is called deification or divinization or theosis. And I remember I was a young man and I didn't know much about my faith and I was reading the Book of Mormon for, for the first time, and I was working in a movie theater in California. And a young man came to me and says, are you a Mormon? And I said, I am. And he says, do you know that you're not a Christian? And I said, I was not informed. I, I, no one informed me that I didn't believe in Jesus. So where do you get this? And he said, well, the reason why you're not a Christian, according to what I've learned, is that you believe you can become like God or that you can become a God. And I frankly had never heard that. And I didn't know how to respond. I was just kind of caught there. And it's been a long time since I've been working in the movie theater, since I was a teenager. And as I've come to understand things like, um, you know, Section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Section 84, all that the Father hath, um, as I've come to understand Revelation 3 or, you know, Third Nephi, where Jesus says, what manner of men ought you to be? even as I am, or Matthew 5, 48, be therefore perfect, even as my Father, which in, in heaven is perfect. To me, all of these are invitations that Jesus wants to give me all that he has. And then over the course of my career, as I've studied Christian history, I'm just going to throw a couple of these out there, but I'll put all of these in the show notes that I've collected. There's tons more. So this is just basically skimming the surface. From the earliest time in early Christian tradition, they're all teaching this. This idea that Jesus, who was God, became man so that we could become like Jesus. And I'll just read a couple of them. So Justin, in his Discourse to the Greeks, 
The word exercises an influence which does not make poets. It does not equip philosophers nor skilled orators, but by its instruction, it makes mortals immortal and mortals into gods. That's Justin. Uh, Cyprian, what Christ is, we Christians shall be if we imitate Christ. Clement, knowing God, he will be made like God and that man becomes God since God so wills it. An origin. I mean, we could go on and on. Can I throw one in, Mike? Yeah, please. This one's C.S. Lewis. Oh, I like him. This is a name that many people will recognize, mere Christianity, not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and yet he came to that same conclusion from studying the Bible. He said, it may be possible for each of us to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. That was C.S. Lewis's conclusion, that we are, pos- we are potential gods and goddesses, and he said that all throughout his writings. It's not a, a vague concept. It's not unique just to Latter-day Saints. Many people have seen that in the scriptures and come to that conclusion. I think, Bryce, that this was lost in the fourth century. Um, all the quotes I've given so far are first couple centuries of Christianity. The last one I want to do is Origen. Then I'll talk about Augustine or Augustine, however you want to say his name, potato, potato. This is Origen. He says, And thus the firstborn of all creation, who is the first to be with God and to attract to himself divinity, is a being of more exalted rank than the other gods beside him, of whom God is the God. The true God, then, is the God. And those who are formed after him are God's images, as it were, of him, the prototype. Origen goes on to talk about God became man so that man could become God. This is all first, first three centuries Christianity. And where do I think it went wrong? What do I think happened? I think Augustine comes along. And Augustine in the fourth century has a dim view of man. And from him, we get things like original sin. We get all the... the the train goes off the rails with Augustine or Augustine, however you want to say his name. So by the time Luther comes around in the 1500s and we get Calvin and we get other reformers, but especially Luther and Calvin, the total depravity of man becomes a thing. So Joseph Smith is standing at the pinnacle of there's all this reformation that's happened and a lot of it's been really good. But from Augustine forward, the, the train's off the rails. And so some of this is good and some of this is bad. And Joseph Smith is just, and by the way, a lot of this stuff's in the Book of Mormon. I mean, 1829, Joseph's a kid. He doesn't know Hebrew. He doesn't know Greek. He hasn't been to college. He doesn't have computers. And the Book of Mormon is just giving all this truth and restoring all this stuff from the first three centuries that even if you had libraries, Joseph Smith didn't have time to read these books. And we're restoring the the notion of theosis, the the idea or divinization or deification that we can become like God. Joseph waits. I think he knows this way early, Bryce, but he doesn't teach it. He holds it tight and he teaches it in Nauvoo right before they kill him. And for those of you that are listening, we'll post it, but it's called the King Follett Discourse. And there's no king. 
There's nobody. There's no king ruling the land of Follett. His name was King. <laughs> which is really weird. Like, why would you name your kid King? But a dude named King dies, and Joseph speaks at his funeral. And essentially, what's he say at the funeral? That God was once like us. That babies grow up to be mommies and daddies, and then mommies and daddies have babies who grow up to be mommies and daddies who have babies who grow up to be mommies and daddies. Nature testifies of that. It's all over. That Heavenly Father was once on an earth like ours. And that he had a heavenly father and went through the same plan that we do and that we are in the process of becoming like him. And Joseph taught that, that this is our work and this is his work and his glory to become like him and do what he does and then be someone else's heavenly father. I I love it. I love the idea that God wants to give us everything. And I think we're practicing here. I'm a dad. I have four sons. And Bryce, you're a dad. You've got a couple kids. And so between us, we're we're practicing what is it like to love and to, to leave a legacy and to, and to grow and to, we mess up. Like I stumble, I fall. I remember one time I was in a race and my shoe fell off, but I still finished the race. That's what it means to conquer. You put the shoe back on and you apologize to your son or your daughter and say, I messed up and you keep going forward. And the goal is God inviting you to sit in his throne. You're to be like me. And I just, in my bones, this tastes good. And I know we're weird. I know people think, oh, you're not Christian because you believe this. And with everything I have, I just want to shout from the rooftops, this is Christianity. This is centuries of Christianity that was lost in the apostasy, but it's in the Book of Mormon. It's in the Book of Revelation. And Bryce, that's that's my testimony. And Joseph Smith restored the very first chapter of the Bible that's been taken out. And in that very first chapter of the Bible, it said, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. That was supposed to be in the first chapter of the Bible. That was from the very beginning. What God is trying to do is bring us home and give us all that he has. Beautiful, Mike. Okay, so let me set this up for where we're going. Yes, Going back to Revelation 3, verse 21, if you overcome, I will grant you to sit with me in my throne. Come into my throne. And then in chapter 4, John comes into the throne. Do you see that transition? If you'll overcome, you can come and sit with me in my throne. Now, let me bring you into the throne and let me show you what's in my throne. And that's chapter four. So we're going to go with John into the throne of God and see what's there and how that relates to our day and the thing in the second coming. So that's where we're going in our next podcast.